and turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be reading this morning verses 6 through 18 of, of Jeremiah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible that you brought with you this morning, then you can take one that's on the rack in front of you. You can find this passage beginning on page 300, or 700, I'm sorry, 749. Now, just for, for context, um, Jeremiah here is, um, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 to 18, which we're going to read, falls within the larger context of what's believed to be either one single sermon or a collection of, of similar sermons that were given all at one time. Chapters 2 and 3, they kind of fit together. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember we're starting this fall a series looking at the teaching of the prophet Jeremiah. And so it's useful. Kevin talked about this last week, but it's useful to kind of fit for ourselves, at least very broadly, where this, where this is historically. Where is, what's Jeremiah talking about and, and how should we understand the times into which he's speaking? Jeremiah is a prophet who ministered in the city of Jerusalem in what was referred to as the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, if you remember, uh, Israel existed under a united monarchy for a relatively brief period of time under King Saul first, and then David, and then Solomon. And after the death of Solomon, the kingdom split into two parts, a northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. Now, Israel throughout its history had very little to look at and commend itself in its relationship with God. Um, for all intents and purposes, threw off the worship of the one true God and, and never had a, 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 a named righteous king, a king that followed after God. And so in, in around 722 B.C., Israel, that northern kingdom, was taken into exile by Assyria and, and essentially erased as its own separate standing entity. Now, the kingdom of Judah in the south continued from that period on. And that's part of where it's during that period, that period where Israel was now gone, but Judah continued to exist, where you have Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah basically came on the scene, and and his ministry spanned all the way up until the destruction, the final destruction of Jerusalem, and sort of the the ending of the the southern kingdom when Jerusalem was destroyed, and and everyone was, was taken into exile in Babylon. And, and, so, and so that was 586 B.C. Right, so, so that's the period in which we're operating here. And most likely, where, which we'll see at the beginning of verse 6, when it says that this specific prophecy, the specific words that Jeremiah was speaking here, happened in the, in the reign of King Josiah, where that kind of puts you in the range is somewhere between 625, 609 B.C., sometime in that in that period. So that's, that's where we are. Now, that'll be helpful just kind of for context, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, what's going on as we read through this passage and as we talk about what it's saying to us in, in just a minute. So listen as I read. This is Jeremiah chapter 3, starting at verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. I gave Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister, Judah, had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. 
In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. And then I will give you shepherds after your own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations who gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord will will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow their stubbornness of their own hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask him to bless our time studying it. God, we're grateful that you speak to us even when the words you speak can be confrontational, even when they're penetrating, even when they show us things about ourselves we would rather not see. We're grateful that you speak to us because in speaking to us, you show that you care. You care about us, and you desire a relationship with us. And so we're thankful that you speak. We're thankful that you call. And Lord, we pray that our hearts might be touched this morning so that we might follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So early last year, a guy by the name of Thomas Leverett published online a short video that he had produced on his own, out of his own resources. He just made this video. And what he did was he took an ultraviolet video camera onto a city street and he asked people to look at themselves, particularly at their skin, not as a regular camera would see them, but as they, as they really are. Now, his goal was to make a point about the effects of, of UV light on, on the skin. And the, and the point that he made was dramatic. See, that's because skin damage as a result of ultraviolet radiation is not immediately visible. In some cases, it can take years to, 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 to appear. But see, when, what the UV camera does is it exposes what's really there. It shows the damage of the, of the skin. And in the video, you see the shocked faces of the people when they look at themselves, when the camera switches kind of from normal mode to, to UV mode, and all of a sudden these, these blotches and these marks appear on their skin. But of course, they're not really repe- appearing as if they hadn't been there before. What's happening is what had been there is now being seen. And what they realize is that they might not have been as healthy as they might have otherwise thought themselves to be, as, as, as what they appeared to be on the, on the surface. Now, the role of the prophet Jeremiah here is similar to that. God had called him to illustrate to the people of Judah, where he ministered, that they were not as healthy as all of their outward religious observance might otherwise have made them feel. His job, if you think of it this way, was to put them under the UV light. 
to show themselves the, the, the blotches that existed all over them, to show themselves the effects not of the accumulated exposure to the sun, but the effect of their, accumulative, their accumulated exposure to sin. Now, like Thomas Leverett, though, the goal is not just to do this for the effect of doing it. The, the motivation in showing someone the true state of who they really are is so that something might be able to be done about it. Now, in, in Thomas Leverett's case, his desire is to let people know about what their state really is so that they can avoid the, the, the consequences of, of skin cancer, of too much exposure to the sun. What Jeremiah wants us to see, his, his love in, in letting us see who we really are is so that we might be saved from the consequences of our rebellion against God. That's, that's what we see in Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3, and it's the essential message that's summarized in what we just read in chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. So let, look, look at the passage again. And what you see is that it sort of divides itself, it's sort of divided into two main sections. The first part, sort of verses 6 through 11, is the exposure. It's, it's seeing who we really are. It's the declaration of, of what we're really like underneath. And, and, and then the second part is, is the love, the, the reason, the motivation. Why is, why is Jeremiah, why is God through Jeremiah exposing this to us? It's because we're loved. And so you have, you have these two sections. You have 6 to 11, a people exposed, and then 12 through 18, a people loved. So let's look at it that way. First, first let's look at a people exposed. Now, no one likes to be exposed. In fact, in the video that I was telling you about, people, when they, when they see the, the, the skin under ultraviolet light, they, they actually, they turn. It's like instinctive. They turn and they cover their faces. Almost everyone did that. They do this right? because it's uncomfortable. I mean, it, it, it's not a comfortable thing to be, to be shown who you are, particularly when you thought you were, were something else. And yet, even though no one likes that feeling, right, we have to be honest, if, if what we come to learn about ourselves is true, if it actually is who we are, then we really have to learn it. We really have to face it. We have to come to terms with, with what it means. Now, the commentators will tell you that, that, that Jeremiah chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 are written in the form of a sort of a legal proceeding. It's something that the prophets will, will do on a number of occasions. They'll, they'll basically kind of set it up as if it's a, a, a declaration, a, an indictment, as if a grand jury has kind of evaluated the evidence and is now bringing charges against someone. You see it, you go, if you look at chapter 2 in verse 9, you see the very specific words that kind of key you in on that. But it, it says, therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. Right? That's legal language. It's an indictment. God's, God's filing charges. Now, what's the crime? Right? Well, with, with, that's all of what chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3 are about, including what we read. That's what it summarizes. And in the broadest sense, the crime is sin. Right? The sin of the people against God. Now, and many, you know, many, of, many of us churchy people, we hear that, we nod our heads, we say, of, of course. But see, see, we have a problem here in the church with the, with the word sin. We have a problem in the world with the word sin. Because, I mean, the term is, in, is increasingly foreign to our culture. Right? They kind of just view it as, well, that's a word that church kind of people use. Right? And, and, and we just kind of throw it around as if we know what it, 
as if we know what it means. And then when we do that, we risk sort of completely alienating ourselves from those around us. Because when we say, well, what's the problem with us? Well, the problem with us is sin. Okay, nobody knows what that means. Now, in addition, and perhaps more personally, we also risk, when we just kind of use the term broadly like that without understanding what it means, we risk ourselves misunderstanding or perhaps taking too lightly what sin means. Because we increasingly just begin to kind of use it as a code word without remembering everything to which it actually refers. Now, let me show you how that happens. The word sin is commonly used. Whether, whether you're in the church or not, someone will use the word. But, but what do most people think of when they hear the word sin? And what do most people think of? Well, they think of, well, it's breaking a rule. Breaking, break, violating a, a command. Doing, doing something bad. Right? Now, that's true. It is. It is, it is violating a rule. But it's, it's more than that. Right? It's like... It's like, if you were to use, if you, it's like if you were to describe a diamond by saying, well, it's kind of like glass. And by that you mean it's clear and light shines through it. And of course that's true, but that's not really all that a diamond is. The same thing is true with, with sin. Sin is, sin is more than just breaking God's rules. That's true. But in order to understand it, you need to describe it, you need to illustrate it, you need to use metaphor, understand how sin works. And that's, that's the fascinating thing to me here, because that's what Jeremiah is doing in chapters 2 and 3. He's describing what sin is by drawing us pictures. He's, he's making analogies, he's showing us sin and its effects from, from different angles. And we don't have time to go through it all, but... It's kind of interesting. He's not speaking. I mean, we kind of present this as a modern problem. Jeremiah is not, is not speaking to a 21st century Western secular audience. Right? He's not being forced to describe sin in this way because he's speaking to, you know, modern Westerners who don't understand the violation of, of God's law. No. I, I mean, if anything, he, he was talking to Jewish people. Right? People to whom he just could have said, the law, remember the law, God's law, you're supposed to be people of the law, you're breaking the law. But he doesn't. That's, he doesn't just, he just do that. Not because it wasn't true, but because in our fallen human condition, our hearts have been rewired to ignore just simplistic calls to submit to authority. Just submit to divine authority. It's the same then as it is, as, as it is in our age today. So the indictment, has to be more descriptive than, than that. And like I said, I'd invite you to go back, read chapter 2 from the very beginning, and see all of the different word pictures and descriptions that Jeremiah uses to describe this, this, this rebellion against God, to describe sin. Now, perhaps the most vivid image, though, and it's the one that's picked up starting in verse 6 of chapter 3 that we read, perhaps the most vivid image because it carries all the way through, even in chapter 2, is this idea of adultery. Right? Look at verses 3 to 6. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Right, so you have the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, 
being compared to two sisters, two unfaithful sisters who abandon their rightful husband for other lovers. That's the comparison that's being made here. Now, there are times, and this is one of them, when conservative people wish that the Bible were more discreet, used language that's more appropriate in, you know, polite company. And actually, the, inter- the New International Version that I just read from, it tries to do that. You know, in what I just, in what I just read, it, it describes it by saying, you know, that they, that they committed adultery. Now, many of you, I know, are, are using or have in front of you the English Standard Version. It actually is a little bit closer to the literal translation of what this is saying. The literal translation of what this is saying is they, they played the whore. That's what it says. King James, if you want to make it flowery, they play, played the harlot. But that's the, that's the sense of what is of being said here. Right? So that's, and that actually, that actually, that's not even close to some of the language that's used elsewhere in chapter 2, which I won't read. If you kind of go back and you think about how, you know, the, the graphic nature of how God is describing things. Now, now that's, that's shocking. Right? And some of us might say, well, why does God use language like that? Well, because, he, because he wants to get your attention. Now, God does it perfectly, of course. He's not doing it to titillate. He's not doing it to, to, to just kind of tease. But he's doing it to get your attention. If it's shocking language to you, then, then, then the point is getting across because sin is and should be shocking. Right? Sin is, this is what he's saying, sin is like a wife who throws off all inhibitions seeks after another guy and lays herself out for him and then doesn't even blush. That's what it says. Look at verse, go back to verse 3 in chapter 3, which I didn't read, but that's what it says. You have the look of a, you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Right? So, so, so the image that's being painted here helps us see how shocking sin is. But, but it actually, it actually, I mean, that, that is true. And you have to kind of acknowledge that because at the, at, at the very first time you read it, you're like, whoa. But that's not actually the most profound thing that's being said here about sin. What, what is adultery? Right, well, at one level, adultery is breaking, it's breaking the rules of marriage. Right? It's, it's what anyone who gets married agrees to. To love you, to honor you, to cherish you, and to protect you, forsaking all others so long as you both shall live. It's a kind of a mutual rule. The two people will get married. It's also one of God's rules, right? It's one of, it's one of God's rules because God's the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And yet, so that's true. It is the breaking of a, of a command of God. It is the breaking of, of a rule. And yet, the thing that stings most about adultery is not that breaking of the rule. Right? The primary wound and if this is you, you if, this, if you experience this, you know this. Or, or, or if you've ever talked to someone who's experienced this, you know this as well. The primary wound is not so much, the primary wound of the person who is, whose spouse has committed adultery is not so much the broken rule, it's the broken heart. Right? In, that, in that moment, the wounded person is not screaming, you broke the rule! The wounded person, even, even if they aren't actually able to say it, to express it in those kinds of words, what the wounded person is crying out, you broke me. It's about a relationship here. You broke my heart. So now then, do you see what God is saying? 
See, God is willing to assume for himself not just the image of a disobeyed king, but he's willing to assume the image of a wounded husband. And if God is likening himself to a wounded husband whose spouse has left him for other lovers, then what he's saying is that sin is not just primarily about breaking my rules. It's about breaking my heart. Do you see sin that way? See it so that, that when, you, when you forget about God, when you insist on doing things your own way, when you, when you, when you replace the one who created you with perfection and who loves you perfectly, when you replace that God with something that at best is a temporary thrill that can never satisfy you, do you see that that sin against God is not just breaking his rules, it's breaking God's heart? Do you think about it that way? The relationship that we have with God is not a mere legal relationship. It's a personal relationship relationship. And so when we sin, it is a personal offense. That's what's being exposed here. That's the primary charge that's being brought here against Judah. Not that they were just rule breakers, though they were, but that, that they were unfaithful to God. So there are people exposed, and so are we. Now, but if that's true, if that's true, then it follows that we aren't just, if, if, if the way God describes sin in that way, if the way that, that sin is exposed to us, if that's true, if that's really the way it is, then it follows that we're not just a people exposed, we are a people loved. Right, think about this. If God didn't love us, right, then unfaithfulness wouldn't wound him. I mean, he might be required to respond to it, but it wouldn't be personal. It would just be legal. He wouldn't care about whether Israel, Judah, returned to him or not. He'd just, he'd just write them off. You know, like an accountant runs, writes off an uncollectible debt. Just clear the balance sheet. It's just what you do. Right? But that's not what he does. He wants them back. Look, look, at verse, look at chapter 3, verse 12. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Return. That's, that's the call. He wants them back because he loves them. They're his, they're his people. Now remember, he's speaking first here. He goes on and repeats it and, and broadens this call to return that would include Judah. But at, at first, he's just starting off here in, in verse 12, and he's just saying, proclaim it to the north, to Israel. Now remember, Israel would have been of the two, the one that you would think had the least right to be able to say, God would never want me back. I mean, maybe he might want Judah back, but he would never want me. After all, look at what I've done. But that's not where he starts. He starts with Israel. Now, this is helpful for us because, there's, because it, it helps us kind of see in Israel and Judah two different types of people that God might be calling to return to him. And to be clear, both groups are violating God's commands, but they come at it in, in, in different ways. And I want to make sure that we see in ourselves how, how both of these groups fit into God's call to return. First group. Right, let, me, let me ask you, if, if when I was talking about adultery a minute ago, did that hurt? Did that strike you someplace? Is it something that you have experienced or something that's very personal to you? Or maybe it's not 
adultery specifically, but it's something of a, of a similar category. Something that leaves you with a, with a feeling of deep shame and regrets. Perhaps something that's hidden, that's, that's never been exposed. Something that leaves you maybe in a position, or, or you can understand the position from the past. Something that leaves you feeling unworthy and maybe even beyond hope. Maybe it's something that you've never even told someone before, and you're wondering whether God still has a place for you. Well, if that's true, then consider God's call to Israel. He's calling you to return. Second group, did you notice in verse 11? It says, the Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Now, how can that be possible? Judah Judah of the two was the one that kept up temple worship. They occasionally, at least, had some good kings. In fact, at the period that Jeremiah is speaking here, King Josiah, he was instituting reforms. He was trying to bring about a a return to God. I mean, at least in an outward sense, you'd look and say, well, wait, how could Israel be more righteous than unfaithful Judah? What it means is that all the goodness, and this is what Jeremiah is trying to expose here in, in, in Judah, for all of the goodness... It's on the surface, right? And therefore, what they're doing is they're compounding their unfaithfulness that exists underneath with hypocrisy on top. It makes them worse. It makes them worse than if they were just honest about their unfaithfulness, right? And that's helpful for us to remember as we come and as we sit here because true worship is not just showing up in the right building on Sunday. It's not just wearing the right clothes. It's not just knowing what the right answer is in in Sunday school, because God, remember, does not primarily care about the rule-keeping on the outside. He cares about the heart on the inside. And so that's why, just like with Israel, he calls and he expands in verse 14 this call to, to everyone to come to return. He's calling both groups. Both groups are filled with faithless people. And so that includes all of us. And he's calling us to return. Now, keep reading from verse 14. Because what happens next? What is the basis on which this returning can happen? I mean, it just says come back, but how? How can can it happen? Let's read again verses 14 to 17. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. You see, what's he he doing here? I want want you to see three sort of images that Jeremiah gives in those verses that I just read. Three amazing promises that he gives to everyone whose sin has been exposed and who, and who wants to respond to that call to, to return. Because there's three amazing promises. There's three things you get when you return. You get a shepherd, you get a husband, and you get a wedding. Shepherd, husband, wedding. It's kind of like a little sermon within a sermon, except I promise you shorter. Right? Look, look, at the, look at the three things. Verse 15. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart and will lead you with knowledge and understanding. 
Now, shepherds are a recurring theme in Jeremiah, and, and they, can just, they could just be a civil leader like a, like a king, or they can refer to leaders in a, in a broader sense, anyone who is, is leading in some kind of capacity. But, but in every sense, in every case, they're, they're meant to be seen as loving leaders, leaders that lead with knowledge and understanding, as it says here, who take the hurting and bring them to a place of safety, who take the broken and help to bring them to a place where they can find healing, where they can find protection from further harm. Here's an example of of how we can think about it. The writer and the counselor, Ken Sandy, many of you might have heard, he he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, which has been widely used, and we've used it for Sunday school classes here. Ken Sandy says he he received a, a phone call one day from a pastor who had a young woman in his congregation who had become pregnant outside of marriage. And the pastor was calling Ken Sandy for advice about how to handle the situation. Where should I start? And primarily, in his own head, what he was asking for was procedurally. <laughs> hey, what do, I, what do I need to do in a situation like this? What are, the, what are the steps that I need to take to kind of be consistent with how the church should, should handle this? And what, what Ken Sandy kind of got from the way that the, this pastor was talking about it, that he, his, that he was approaching it that way. And he said, hold on, hold on a second. He said, do you have a Bible there with you? He said, yeah, I've got a Bible. So I want you to open it to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. I do that if you've got your, your Bible. Open it to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. So the man turned there, the pastor turned there, and, and Ken Sandy said, read it. The man read it, and it's about God. And it says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And Ken Sandy asked him, he said, he said, I just, just imagine for a minute that this young woman is reading through the book of Isaiah and she comes to chapter 40, verse 11. I want you to, like, is the first thing that, that comes to her mind, do you think the first thing that comes to her mind is, my pastor is just like that? And the man was cut to the heart because he said, no, that's probably not at all what she would say. And he said, well, if you're looking for my advice, that's why you called. If you're looking for my advice about the first thing you, do, you need to do, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to her and to repent and ask her to forgive you for not being the shepherd that she needs. And he did. But the, but the broader point is that we, we need a shepherd, a shepherd who will lead us perfectly, knowledge and understanding, who will take us to a place of safety. And, and that is the shepherd to whom Jeremiah is ultimately pointing us here. Right? The commentators point out that, there, that there's un- unmistakably here, unquestionably, a messianic expectation, a recognition, in other words, that, that all the previous shepherds have failed to live up to the standard that is needed, and that even though there will be men who will come in the future, like Ezra and Nehemiah, who will be shepherds and care for the people and rebuild the temple and, and bring the people back to God for a time, that they too will not live up to the standard, that they're not all that Israel and Judah will require. And that there will one, be, one day be someone who will claim that title for himself, and that is Jesus, who repeatedly referred to himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who knows his sheep, who cares for his sheep and desires to bring them to a place of safety. But even more than that, you remember that there was on one occasion when Jesus was referring to himself as the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd, he does more than just lead, doesn't he? He lays down his life for the sheep. 
Now, why would he do that? Why would the shepherd lay down his life for his... The only reason why a shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep is if for him it was about more than just a job, more than just a business relationship, more than just a legal obligation that he was carrying out for his employer to make sure that the sheep were, were safe. The only way a shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep was if the shepherd actually loved those sheep. And that's why it matters very much when Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah in verse 14, return faithless people, for I am your husband. Brings us back to that same metaphor, that same image of adultery. Right? Wait, wait a minute, you say, do, wait, doesn't adultery, doesn't that give God the right to deliver a certificate of divorce? That's what it, that's what it says here in verse 8. Well, yes, yes it does. But he still wants us. He still wants to be married to us, even when we're sinners, even, when we're, even though we've defiled ourselves, even though we've, we've proven ourselves faithless when we've cheated on him? Well, yes. But, and this is where it gets even better, not only does, not only does Jesus just lay down his life for us like a shepherd, but he lays down his life for us so that we might be beautiful as if being presented to a husband. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, this is where it comes from. Ephesians chapter 5 is perhaps the classic understanding of the Bible's purpose and role of of marriage. And and if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you see what it says about husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so far, just like a shepherd. Lays down his life for his sheep, just like Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her, but then it continues in verse 26, gave, her, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or, stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. <laughs> that means go ahead and turn on the UV light because you know what? Your skin is perfect. Do you see? God wants to make us beautiful so that he can present us to himself because he wants to be close to us, because he wants us to be in his presence. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. That's what it's talking about with with all this talk about the Ark of the Covenant. This is men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not enter into their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. That's what it's talking about. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the, was the special box that contained the reminders of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. It included the Ten Commandments that were placed in the, the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the box were these two angels with outstretched wings, and they touched in the center, and it formed in its total the top of the, the Ark of the Covenant, what they referred to as the mercy seat. It was the, the place of God's covenant presence with his people. It was where God came and and where he dwelled. But see, the problem, because of the sin of the people, the rebellion of the people, is this this mercy seat, this throne where God dwelled, it had to be veiled. It had to be hidden. It had to be put in the center of of a a room that was called the Holy of Holies. (laughs) And and no one could just wander in and out of there because the presence of God where where he sat was not a place because of our because of our sin that we could just approach lightly. But see, in the death of the shepherd, in the death of the husband, we have the ripping of the veil. And the presence of God no longer needs to be hidden from his people. That's what it says. The throne of the Lord and all nations. They will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And, the, and, 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 and when, 
when Jerusalem, God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, becomes the place of God's dwelling, it's not hidden behind behind closed doors. It's there for all to see. This is what will happen at the climax of human history. This is what it talks about in Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. This is the Apostle John talking about what he sees in those last days, and it's what Jeremiah was pointing towards. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Do you see the image? They're ready for the wedding now. That's where all this is headed. The climax. A great wedding feast where God will live with his people, where his presence won't be hidden, but it will be available to all who have been covered by the sacrificial blood of the lamb. Now, will you let this sink in? If you go in chapter 2, look at verse 32 of chapter 2. I know we didn't read it, but like I said, it's part of the whole. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Right? It's, this, is, this is actually it's a perfect rhetorical question because everybody knows the answer to this, this question. You don't need to have lived 3,000 years ago because these things are the same today. Of course the bride doesn't forget her wedding ornaments. Right? Can you imagine? I mean, I've done, I've done a number of weddings over the last couple of years. I've been to lots of weddings in my life. I've never, ever experienced a situation where the bride gets to the front to be presented to her husband and she realizes, oh, I forgot my makeup. My dress. I forgot to put on my dress. Right? Why? It would never happen. Why not? Because that dress, the jewelry, the makeup, they have one main purpose on a wedding day. To help that bride look the most physically beautiful and stunning that she will ever look in her entire life. And no bride wants to come to the front to meet her husband and not be that beautiful woman. Now listen, here's the exposure God brings. Here's what he tells us about all the the human ornamentation. It's a facade. At, At best... All of the outward beauty, all the makeup, and all of the clothing hardware that's associated with a wedding dress, at best, it's just a temporary thing, and it won't last. Oh, no. <laughs> you say, that, that means I'm exposed. Well, it means I'm standing under the UV camera, and everyone can see my damage. But, see, but don't you see? That's where Jesus comes in, and he says to the bride, you don't have to hide behind your makeup and your jewelry. I know who you are. I've come to make you beautiful. That is who every one of us is. That's that's who we are. If we've acknowledged our guilt, if we've returned to God through Jesus Christ, we are beautiful. Do you feel that this morning? It's It's an objective fact. That's what Jesus does for his bride. And most of, the, most of the continued weakness that we experience in our lives, most of our failure that we experience in our lives comes from the fact that we don't fully grasp or we, don't, or we fail to live out the full implications of that 
of that amazing truth that this is who God is, that this is what he has done for us, and as a result, this is who we now are. We are a people exposed. Our sin is worse than we thought. It's not just rule-breaking. It's a personal offense against the heart of God. And yet, the good news is that we are also, and at the very same time, because of that, a people loved by a God who wanted his adulterous people back so much that he died for them to restore their beauty and to restore their purity. So for the first time, maybe this morning, or for the thousandth time, the call goes out to you from God, return to me. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you call. We're grateful that you fulfill your promise, your promise to make us beautiful. God, I don't know who's sitting here. I mean, I know many of the people who are sitting here, but I don't know all their situations. And so I pray that you would do what I cannot, that you would touch human hearts and that you would turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that you would help us to see what we truly need as a shepherd, a husband, who loves us despite our unfaithfulness, who covenants to make us beautiful so that we might bring him glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.